The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's 2021. The worst may be behind us, but many challenges remain. How can we help investors stay on track during difficult times? We'll also discuss behavioral finance, including the impact of recency bias on advisors, the move in interest rates, stock market predictions, and even financial conspiracy theories. That's with our guest, repeat guest, founder and CEO of Taze Asset Management in New York, Felipe Taze. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We are into 2021. I'm sure many out there would agree that putting 2020 behind us felt really good. So how are the markets looking so far this year? Well, Robin, I kind of think it's a tell of two markets already, kind of like what last year was. Again, last year was an amazing year in so many ways. Of course, it was dominated by growth stocks in the first half. And while growth stocks still did pretty well in the second half, it was really sort of a rotation to more cyclical fare that, that really dominated the last half of the year. Starting off this year, that was a continuation coming this year, really remarkable performance out of smaller companies, uh, value sectors, international. But at the beginning of this week, right before the inauguration, it's been kind of a switch again back towards big tech. And I think part of that, I mean, they're talking about earnings and stuff, but but really, it's I think the surprise is that uh, the new president actually nominated somebody who's probably going to be a little more friendly on big tech. And I think that's kind of had an impact on the markets of late. So, well, there is bound to be a lot of change this year. We're just a few weeks in and we've already seen both positive and negative indications for what may lie ahead. We are in the midst of what may be the most difficult time of the global pandemic. There's extremely high death rates around the world and concerning variants of the virus spreading, but the vaccines are being distributed slowly but surely. Um, another thing, we witnessed a violent mob attack on the Capitol recently and um, an attempt to stop the democratic process. But again, democracy did win out in the end. The transfer of power was peaceful. So what are you feeling hopeful and trepidatious about as the year kicks off? Okay, that there was so much in that, of course. I mean, we're just in historic times. And I guess I will speak to my expectations as an investor. And so in terms of positive and negative expectations coming into the new year, I think, first of all, a positive, and maybe I'm just being hopeful in the data, is that in an absolute sense, you're absolutely right, Robin, the COVID data is still terrible. Uh, but it appears we've had a peak, and it would make sense that that peak hopefully is, in fact, the peak, and we can only hope. And that would be a positive. The other positive is most likely we're going to have the best economic growth in GDP terms, most likely, uh, since the 1980s. And there's even a chance that if things all click into place, it could be the best since World War II. Again, uh, consumers are in their best financial position in a very long time. There's pent up demand. That all said, uh, the market doesn't always do what the economy is doing. I mean, look at last year, the market did a great job when the economy was not very good. And we've got a backdrop now of extremely high valuations. You could say the highest valuations ever, depending what you're looking at. 
Uh, you could some people say, well, that's countered by low interest rates. Well, interest rates are now rising, and there's an argument for why they could continue to rise. And then there's sentiment, and sentiment, of course, all last year there was a wall of worry. People were negative, 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 and now you know what? They're finally positive. And again, when you look at sentiment surveys, when they when sentiment gets this bullish, you get below average returns over the next three, six, and twelve months, and a higher probability of loss. So, yeah, I can definitely say some positives, but there's some negatives as well. Right. Well, let's bring in our guest. Felipe Tays is the founder and CEO of Tays Asset Management in New York and a return guest on The Weighing Machine. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Robin. Great to be here. Hi, Rusty. Hey there, Phil. Well, Phil, the last time we had you on the show was February of 2020. And, and what a time, huh? I mean, it was just right before the market peaked. So much has happened since then. The U.S. declared a public health emergency the day after our episode aired. And I remember you had your walk-up song as I Want to Be Sedated. And that was like a perfect song for the environment we're about ready to go into. So so anyway, so let's start with a look back. Uh, 2020 was such a historic and tumultuous year. What did you learn from those 12 months? Well, now you could have this, you could change the song to I Want to Be Vaccinated. I, I <laughs> oh, perfect. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it was a continual learning process for me that, that, amplifies what you were just talking about, Rusty, which is that there doesn't have to be a correlation between the economy and the markets. And we were fascinated all year how uh, the, the, the economy could have the greatest decline in GDP since basically ever or, you know, the Great Depression. And in the face of that, those statistics coming out, the market is rallying, you know, 68% from the bottom on the S&P 500. So it was a shocker. Uh, it continues to be. And, and so it just, it just more, you know, more, more evidence for, for not for me, but I think for everyone who's an investor or an advisor in this, in this market, that it's impossible to predict the markets. Uh, and, and so you have to have to create a strategy or a pathway that, that, that doesn't require prognosis. As you mentioned there, so 2020 was an extremely volatile year, obviously around the world and in the markets. And as investors, it reminded us of the importance of considering how much risk we are comfortable tolerating and how important it is to stick with our long-term investment plans, particularly considering, as you mentioned, how significantly the market bounced back after that initial decline. So this all falls into um, behavioral finance, which you wrote a white paper on recently. And your firm conducted a study with investors um, where you asked them how they would react if faced with a significant market downturn. And some of your findings were really interesting. Um, What did you find out? Well, so two things. We did write a white paper on behavioral finance, and then we also were published in the IWI uh, Monitor with a paper on the behavioral portfolio. But the survey that you're talking about, I, I've always wanted to do this because we are risk managers for financial assets. But we asked investors a couple of questions. One of them was, do they have an understanding of the significance of market downturns historically? The, the simple answer, the short answer is no. They don't. So investors, when they're putting their money into portfolios, they don't really understand how bad it can get. Another question related to what would happen if the market moved down similarly to how it has moved down historically. And many investors suggested that they would either uh, leave stocks altogether, leave their advisors with a decline of 40 percent or more. And we know that the markets have moved down that much in the past. But a a couple of really even more interesting points. One, One was that a question, 
would you be willing to accept lower returns if you had a degree of confidence that you wouldn't participate in significant declines? And most investors, I believe 65% agreed with that. And then finally, as it pertains to preparing investors for declining markets, the vast majority of investors suggested that if they knew what their plan was for uh, market downturns in advance, it would give them much greater sense of stability during uh, these declining markets. So, so we thought that that was, we, we hadn't seen a study like that done before, but we thought that information was enlightening. And another thing that you wrote about that I thought was really interesting was that our industry as a whole may be hindered by recency bias. And we're familiar with that, but it's not just that we are influenced by what we what happened, you know, in the past year or two, but really what we have seen within our lifetime. So how is that bias impacting the work advisors are doing to guide investors? Behavioral finance is fascinating, but but frankly, not the way that most people talk about it, which is what you said, Robin. They, they think about like, how do you avoid a sale in March of, of 2020? And it's much bigger than that. You know, we, we, we do, we created a worst case scenario visualization that walked advisors through a balanced portfolio during the Great Depression. And let me just say that it is a completely bleak story where if you look at what happened during the financial crisis, and most advisors consider that to be a really extreme market, uh, in the Great Depression, after the financial crisis level declined, stocks went down 48% the next year, and then they went down 48% the year after that. Then you had a, a sort of a, a weak rally for five years, and then another five-year bear market. And so w- when you look at what, what would have happened to a balanced portfolio, I mean, within that period, it would have drawn down as much as 72%. So your balanced investors would have had 28% of their portfolio left. And, and the takeaway from that is that there's just no way if you it, it look at the broader course of history that investors or even advisors in their practices would be able to survive that. Uh, you know, and a, and a whole other conversation to have, which we won't go into for limited time purposes, but which has to do with inflation, which is that no one thinks about inflation. Uh, it's just considered to be tackled. And when people build portfolios and conservative portfolios, they just build them in a way where they put conservative investors into more fixed income. And it's a completely unconsidered thing. So when you consider the broad course of history, it changes up the whole conversation about how you build portfolios. I think the, the white paper is, first of all, we'll make sure we have a, a link in the show notes. And again, I thought it was very readable. And the, and the main points, I think, were just really key takeaways for all advisors to to know and to use. But at your firm, you've created behavioral portfolios that are designed to counter some of these biases you just talked about. And they're based on behavioral portfolio theory, which says investors, again, have three basic needs from their portfolios, utilitarian, expressive, and emotional. Can you walk us through those needs and how you build portfolios that meet them? Well, yeah. So thanks, Rusty. We articulated a little differently. We put the uh, utilitarian needs as sort of like economic needs and uh, the other needs as what we call psychological needs. And, and so w- what we've tried to do in, in this paper is for the first time, take the basic needs that, that you talked about, Rusty, which, which another way you can frame it is like you don't want significant losses. You want to have above inflation returns. You, you want to be growing when markets are growing. Uh, you want consistency of returns. And what we've tried to do with the behavioral portfolio is is build something that meets all those needs, which is different than building a portfolio that attempts to create the maximum gain for a given level of risk. And, and then 
I think the step that where, where this paper is enlightening is it, it attempts to quantify and say, how do you do that and how do you quantify it? And the way we express it is with a, a modified return chart. You want to cut the left tail short, but you want to keep you want to keep the right tail similar to a conventional portfolio. And, and one of the first things that that means is you, it's not really appropriate to use standard deviation as your core risk management tool because standard deviation asks you to both limit the left tail and the right tail. And that's not what you want to do. And, and so then we have some specific prescriptions as to how you build different parts of the portfolio to address the kind of significant risk that we talked about that we saw in the Great Depression, to address the possibility of inflation, and then to create a strategy that produces the least obstacles for investors, both economic and economically and psychologically. Well, I've heard many presentations from you and read the white papers, and I think I'm really in a key part of how you're managing money, which quite frankly is different from the kind of the conventional asset management approach is communication is critical and, and communicating to clients is such an important aspect of behavioral coaching, particularly during periods of crisis. How do you communicate to your clients and encourage advisors to communicate to theirs? So thank you so much for asking that question. <laughs> because, you know, what, if someone asked Felipe, what, is, what are some of the biggest insights in your 26 years of running these risk managed strategies? And among the biggest is that, okay, we just talked about what the portfolio should look like, but here's our realization. You can have the perfect portfolio that is what you think, what you believe is the best suited to meet both the economic and psychological needs of investors. But if you don't come as an advisor to your investor relationship with an entire communications tool set around that portfolio, it won't work. And, and why won't it? Well, what's going to happen is if you had someone in risk managed strategies during the 10 year bull market between 2009 and early 2020, um, they would have left their risk managed strategies. Why? Because they've trailed. And after a certain number of years, they say like, look, I don't want this anymore. Just put me into something that doesn't have risk management. And then they would have been vulnerable to the losses that we saw in March and we would have been freaking out along with everyone else. Similarly, if you don't have a communications tool set around declining markets, then many investors are going to want to leave just fully invested investments uh, as well. And so there was a study in Morningstar that confirms uh, what we believe, as often believed, which is just in time communications, which means your investor comes to you and says, oh, this, I'm, I'm worried about this performance. It doesn't work. You know, so in terms of, let, let's give an example with worst, worst case scenarios. Instead of trying to downplay the significance of declining markets, we think advisors should actually walk investors through some of those worst case scenarios that I talked about so that, so that they're not surprised by uh, markets when they come along. But then the next step is explain to them explicitly how the portfolio is designed to address significant declines, what pieces are there to make it work. And then here's, the, here's probably the most important step, which is explain to investors what you're going to do when that behavioral challenge happens or when significant declines happens, as an example. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to rebalance. You're going to, you're going to make the contrarian move. You're going to rebalance out of the things that just lost the, the least and move into asset classes that just lost the most. And so you introduce that framework. You talk about all the different behavioral challenges that are going to come along and then relentless reiteration, relentless repetition around those ideas so that when you enter into 
uh, an, an environment like we experienced in March of last year, instead of your investors being just completely in the dark about everything, they're, they're walking right along with you uh, with a plan of action. Well, let's shift gears here a little bit um, and talk about a few other points that we wanted to see if you could touch on. And the first is the 10-year Treasury yield, which fell below 1% last March when the economic crisis first hit really hard. And it stayed below that mark until January 6th when it climbed to 104. So market watchers are celebrating that. But before 2020, the 10-year had not been at 1% in, I think it was 100 years. So is that rebound really something to celebrate? Fixed income is 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 fascinating because and how quickly we normalize things. So we're all like, oh yeah, the ten years at one percent. Uh, but as you said, like even during the the lowest of the lows prior to this recent ten year period, we only saw the ten year, uh, and this includes the Great Depression and and World War II and the huge kind of government debt bubble that we saw back then. Was the ten year was only just above two percent. So it's entirely, it's unprecedented even to be at 1%, much less below it. And, and so we're, we're significantly under uh, considering or under weighing the, the significance of the fact that it's that low. So you've got the possibility that investment grade bonds are going to move lower. So they, they currently have more or less negative real returns. And so all the advisors out there, this is important. In your investment grade bonds in your portfolios, that 20 or 40 or 60% allocation is currently producing a negative real yield. Okay, understand that. Then you have uh, principal risk associated with that negative real yield, which doesn't sound like a great thing, but there's something, that, there's an additional measure in addition to low yields is that while we've seen yields move lower, the duration of of investment grade bonds, something things like the aggregate bond index has increased. So uh, there, there's a, a, a stat that there was an article in Bloomberg recently that was talking about the U.S. corporate bond index yield to duration ratio, and what that does is it basically measures what the principal risk is in investment grade bonds. This is at an all-time low. So when duration is long and yields are low, that amplifies then the risk to principal for fixed income. So, you know, uh, w- w- with our PR term team about a couple of months ago, we t- uh, I mentioned that there could be a fixed income train wreck. It's probably not going to be like a train wreck. It's going to be more like a train slowing down and then going backwards. And, and I just think that when you think about fixed income right now, it's time to think about alternatives. It's a time to think not in a conventional way and to try to tackle that issue with, with, with ways to both stretch yield higher, but also to address uh, the potential for losses in that in that space. And what's your advice for investors who are concerned about low rates? And, and also, can you talk about how the Orion platform has worked for you to help investors in this environment? Yeah, on the, on the last podcast I did, did with you, I, I talked a little bit about the fact that you know, we, we market to the entire community of investment advisors, and that includes the, uh, you know, billion dollar RIA community. And, and what, what I think Orion uh, and the OPS platform does is it creates a framework for thinking about investing that is not a conventional framework of just a you know, 60-40 mix. And as a part of that, by having a diversifier strategy, and, and, most, and much of that is made up, many of the strategies in there are made up of 
alternative fixed income strategies is you create just sort of like a, a, a tool set that addresses, that allows you to answer that question. And so what is that tool set for fixed income and for the diversifier category? And it looks like potentially, and there might be other solutions out there, but one good potential solution is tactical high yield. Uh, tactical high yield allows you to stretch yields higher. Uh, right now, High yields have come down, but the, the spread is still around three and a half between high yield bonds and, and treasuries. But simultaneously, it allows you to attempt to address the risk of declining fixed income. And so if interest rates move higher, if that then has an effect on high yield bonds, or if you see the proxy risk that equity that high yield bonds have with equities, that would allow you to try to de-risk that category. So we, we think it, it, it potentially addresses both Parts of it, and because that's just built in as a as one of the three categories on at Orion, it allows you to just like choose that and solve that problem without really having to to, to make a, a great deal of intellectual effort. I like it. Hey, I'm gonna I want to talk equity markets, but before I do, I have a couple things on fixed income markets, and one is going to be an eventual uh, repackaging of a question that we did get from somebody at Orion. Uh, again, I let it out people know who I'm interviewing. There's a question that came in. I'll repackage that in a moment. But first of all, I do have a story to tell. Um, and of course, Phil Felipe loves this story. It is, of course, I was on a panel years ago at some big conference, you know, hundreds of advisors. And I was on the panel. And I think something along the lines of, I was talking about fixed income did serve a role as, you know, stabilizers and portfolios. Of course, I was talking to investment grade. And I can't remember exactly all the details. And then Felipe had the, like, the, he was the featured speaker, and of course he killed it. He had a very interesting presentation, but one of the ways he started off the presentation was he gets up on the stage and says, you know, on the prior panel, uh, Rusty Vannon was talking about fixed income. Well, he was dead wrong. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I just wanted to say I'm glad you're on this podcast today because you know revenge is a dish best served cold, and you can't wait to some of the questions I have right now. No, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Now, the um, when it comes to fixed income, first of all, actually, I hear your points and your your points about fixed income, particularly when they're so low or intellectually sound, and, and I, I totally get it. Uh, but the question I have, and it's repackaged, is that somebody at Orion was really talking about corporate bonds and sort of implying even talking about how corporate bonds aren't, aren't just like treasuries, of course, obviously they have a component, but they're also, because they're corporate, they're a little bit like equities. And because of that, they have risk which are different from treasury bonds, and uh, they have greater credit risk, which means there's a chance they can default. Uh, they have greater tail risk, which means that, as you were talking about, they don't have that normal distribution of a, sta of a standard deviation that when corporate bonds go bad, they go horribly bad, and they have really big, nasty tails. And so really the, the person was asking like, how do you manage that? But I'm repackaging this because despite all these comments about fixed income, Phil, you use high yield fixed income, which of course is, is a more aggressive corporate bonds, but you've used it effectively over many years. And I just want you to expand a little bit on your investment management philosophy and process around high yield bonds. Okay, yeah, awesome. By the way, Rusty, you were right. Since <laughs> that panel, uh, investment grade fixed income has done amazingly well. So there you go. Um, oh, you just set me up so I can ask you tough questions later. <laughs> so if you look at, uh, I, I would segregate the the uh, corporate bond world into the, the two categories of investment grade and high yield to have this conversation. And um, 
and then and then talk about also treasuries too because you know if you're if you're looking at there are all these different kinds of risks and and what what you've seen over the course of the past couple of months is that treasuries which have lower risk from uh, uh, default obviously but right now have more risk due to rising interest rates and just as you see treasuries do better during deflation moments where the economy is falling now when you're reflating and seeing the economy become more stable you've got more more potential losses in even very secure low paying rates but then talking about the corporate uh, bond market world uh, corporate bonds have been behaving more or less uh, like treasuries with the exception of a few days in March of, of last year and, and and it's interesting because they've got they, they've effectively had the backing of the of the of the Fed who said that they were going to be buying investment grade bonds to help support levels and and so then you just saw uh, tremendous uh, re- returns from the bottom of the market in March. So how do you then, in our space, in high yields, I'll actually answer your question, Rusty. I'll get to that. It is high yield bonds, they do have interest rate risk. They do have default risk. But for the last 20 or 30 years, we haven't really seen either of those play a major role in principal losses in high yield bond marketplace. Mo- virtually all the down market risk we've seen in high yield bonds has been a result of a correlation to equity markets. And so uh, to the extent, you know, if you look at how much do high yield bonds move down when stocks move down significantly, if you look at the at the financial crisis, uh, we, we saw high yield bonds move down in excess of 25%, where the S&P was down around 38. So, you know, somewhere between 50% and two thirds of, mar- of the way, equities moved lower. So how do you address that risk? Well, in, in our strategies, we have a price reactive algorithm that's looking only at the price of high yield bonds. So if, if high yield bonds begin to move lower and penetrate our target exit level, uh, we scale out fairly quickly over a course of three days into either investment grade corporate bonds or cash equivalents, normally in our system, cash equivalents. And, and so how effective is that as a tool? Well, you can look back over our long history of managing high yield bonds and we've managed through the internet bubble burst, financial crisis, fourth quarter 2018 and March of 2000. And if you look at March of 2000 of this year, because that was such a rapid move, um, our high yield uh, bond positions uh, were were down less than than 1%, while the high yield bond market was down in excess of 13% at the bottom in March. So the one thing I'll say, because there are a couple of different people in this tactical space is that it's our opinion that we move more quickly than most people in this space. And what that means is that to the extent that you can you can exit a strategy that is in a state of decline more quickly, we think that adds an additional component or, or maybe potentially more robust loss avoidance relative to uh, strategies that are going to wait for two weeks or a month or so. So then, you know, what, what happens during a big decline uh, that potentially can can create a return opportunity for tactical high yield, because if you're successful at missing the move lower, this is what we saw during the financial crisis and your target return level, target reentry price dials lower for high yield bonds. You can potentially buy in near the lows of the market. And while it, and so you create a scenario where you don't participate in the fall, but you, you do participate in a portion of the rebound. So now you have a gain that you wouldn't have had if the loss didn't happen. So, 
that, that's why you know the, the, these these strategies have become much more popular over the last decades. And and I would guess if you look at uh, the OPS platform, you, you, you've seen just a huge migration in the diversifier space over to tactical high yield. Yeah. Well, thanks for the explanation. And it should be pointed out that it's working. I mean, performance last year was rock solid uh, last year, but it's not just last year. It's been a long-term track record of success. And and so it, it is an important distinction to be made. It's just like you're buying high yield, setting it and forgetting it. It is being actively managed, which I think is key to an asset class, which again can display some pretty quirky risk characteristics, particularly the time you don't want it. All right, let's go to the equity markets and let's keep talking about risk though. So the last two stock market declines have basically been air pockets. When it dropped, it dropped. And stock prices declined incredibly sharply in the wake of bad news, in advance of bad news, but then it recovered incredibly quickly too. Once investors realized, you know, that it was probably short-term turbulence, not long-term problems, how do you think advisors can help investors recognize sort of this sharp volatility, these air pocket declines, and not react to them? I was talking earlier about the tool set, a communications tool set around portfolios that helps investors stay with a, a, something that's just designed to meet their needs. And this is a perfect example. So right now, when markets are not in a state of, of crisis is the time to introduce the, the concept of, of risk management. Um, you know, uh, in a commentary that we have coming out, we looked at the velocity of declines over, over the last four declines, starting from the internet bubble to the one we saw last year. And it's been consistently increasing in terms, and we measure that from the peak of the market to the trough, what's the average percent decline per day? And, and so it's increased dramatically from the internet bubble, then higher in the financial crisis, then higher during the 2018 fourth quarter decline, and of course, much higher during the pandemic. There, there's a false assumption that investors are making, and, and advisors need to help address that with investors. And that assumption is that all is well, but if it does start to go south, we're going to be able to act. We're going to be able to recognize what's happening and change our path so that we don't fully participate in the decline. That can't happen. And it can't because the way down market or, or, or probably won't happen. And, and that's because the way market declines play out is first, it's, it's, a, it's a mild decline, then maybe a five or 10% decline. And we, when, when it, investors and advisors experience those quick declines, they're thinking in terms of conventional portfolio theory. And what is, what is one of the most important behavioral bits of guidance is to don't sell at the bottom, right? So no one knows when it moves down 10%, whether it's the end or the beginning. And so then the next step is a 20% decline. And you reach a certain point where you'd feel like a fool to sell. So once your equity portion of your portfolio is down 25%, uh, you know, then, you're, then you're just like, well, we can't sell. And that then increases the vulnerability to further declines ahead. So Maybe that could be a resonant takeaway for advisors listening to this podcast, which is that the, the hardest thing isn't not selling at the bottom. The hardest thing is introducing and making sure your risk management is robust at the top because, it, because it's elusive. And so, you know, dial in, look at, look at the loss avoidance that whatever your, your, of, your, of your portfolio that happened during March. And if you're not happy with it, do something about it now and then explain it to investors now. And again, just to reiterate, I mean, uh, earlier comment, I, it's such an important part for advisors really to educate kind of these worst case scenarios. I, I'm sure a lot of people think that they want to do that because they might lose a sale, but that's not 
That's not our role. Our role as investment professionals, of course, is making sure investors have good experiences to reach their goals. So I absolutely think it's critical. Okay, let's hit an issue which I kind of addressed in the opening comments, which I got to admit, it's, it's got to be a big issue. And obviously, a lot of investors don't really seem to really notice right now, or maybe they notice and they think they can just get out before it's too late. But Jeremy Grantham, for instance, who is kind of the co-founder of the firm GMO, is a fame, value, and contrarian investor, and he's known for his contrarian calls. Some of them are spot on, and the ones he hasn't been spot on, he's just been really early on. And he recently said the stock market is in a fully-fledged epic bubble with extreme overvaluation and hysterically speculative investor behavior. He's always using big, fancy words with lots of exclamation points. So what do you think of that assessment, and what are your expectations for equity returns in this coming year? You know, so so you hear someone like that, and it and it sounds foreign, right? Because we all feel so good about the fact that we've got such you know great gains in 2020, and we see the markets moving ahead this year, and everything everything just seems fine. Uh, I, I find Jeremy Grantham to have resonance, and and you you know talk about you talk about investor behavior. There's a guy, he, he is the biggest victim of performance chasing on the planet because, you know, he, this is a guy who manages over a hundred billion dollars. And, and even recently he's lost over half of his AUM due to the fact that they've been, they've been saying that the market's overvalued, but he, but he made the correct call in the internet bubble burst. And he was saying, uh, he, they dramatically scaled down their growth positions. And back then they lost 50% of AUM in their asset allocation models as a result of those calls. So there's a guy you want to listen to. Uh, when, when we look at, at, at as, you, as you suggested, Rusty, earlier, we're in the tippy-top range of valuations. Um, all of these things now seem obvious. Um, so, so I would listen to Jeremy. He's been early, but, but he's been right. Uh, you know, t- the, the, two of the last times he's made that call. Yeah, exactly. All right. So because of this environment and kind of, well, again, weaving back into some of your earlier comments, I mean, it makes sense for investors. I mean, I think you think obviously, and I think as well, is to consider hedged equity strategies. And in your view, what are some of the most important elements of a viable hedged equity strategy? Okay. And, and actually, if in the paper that we wrote that's the uh, on the behavioral portfolio, we, we identify some of the things to look for. But if you want to try to create that return distribution chart that has the shorter left tail, but the right tail that looks, um, what, what we recommend you do is you split your equities among always invested low beta types of strategies and risk managed equities. And by doing that, then you address the possibility of decline, but you also acknowledge that markets are generally efficient. And so what does that risk, risk managed equity piece look like? Well, you, you want to try to, in our opinion, avoid things like alternative or absolute return strategies. And, and we jokingly refer to absolute return strategies as absolutely no return strategies. Uh, because those strategies, while they may shorten the left tail, do not achieve the objective of keeping a right tail similar to a conventional portfolio. So in your hedged equity or risk managed strategy, you want to have, find something that has relatively full exposure to the stock market. One way to measure that is look for up market correlation of 0.5 or higher. And then uh, similarly, you want to look for low down market correlation. <clears throat> and, and so uh, look for strategies that have lower than a 0.5 uh, 
correlation to things like the S&P 500. And what that then tells you then is you're matching markets during rising markets, but but attempting to not match during declining markets. We did it. We looked on the Morningstar database, uh, uh, Robin and, and Rusty, and we looked at all separate accounts and all mutual funds that had an inception date of January 1st of 2008 or earlier. And we asked the question, how many strategies meet that criteria of greater than 0.5 up capture, less than 0.5 down capture that also had an explicit risk managed strategy? So out of the the many thousands of things on there, only 22 strategies met that criteria. Um, So look for that. So so what to watch out for and look out for? you want to, you know, there's some things now like uh, buffer ETFs that cap upside. Uh, our, re- our research show, shows that that can take away most of the above inflation growth if you're capping upside. Um, if it's a buffer type of a strategy, um, does it have a floor to its protection um, that it can break through? That's one question you want to ask. If you're looking at hedged equities, which you deploy option strategies, we've actually found some of these that whatever they're doing in their options, because they're selling some options as well, actually amplify risk from sudden events. Um, so those would be the basic criteria we would look to for uh, risk managed equities. You know, one quick comment on that, and I think you hit something right on the head, which I think many advisors and investors miss, is that when they're looking at a head strategy or alternative quotation marks around it, a lot of times they're emphasizing maybe low volatility, but a lot of those low volatility strategies have incredibly high correlations to the overall market. It's not really doing what you want it to do in terms of diversification. So I think that's a really good point about looking for those low correlations in the, in the up and down markets. That's key. Yeah, well, I'm going to jump back in here with one final question before we wrap up. And this is one that you suggested, Felipe, and I thought it was pretty fun. Um, it's about conspiracy theories. And conspiracy theories have moved from the fringes to the mainstream in recent years, unfortunately. I just read yesterday, and this is an NPR study actually um, that is 100% true, that 17% of Americans believe that a cabal of Satan worshipers is trying to control the world. So if we were finance conspiracy theorists, what would be our biggest concerns? Okay. I guess I will, guess we won't consider what happens if these people are right and there is a cabal of Satan worshipers. That would would have for the financial markets. Have oh, <laughs> so you ever assuming that was false? Yeah, I mean, don't we all have our sort of part of us that is a is a conspiracy theorist and like here's these things and like, yeah, that might happen. And, and we love to be contrarians, all of us, so we can think like, ah, oh, and this is going to happen and no one knows it. Um, so if I was a financial conspiracy theorist, um, I would say, why, why are governments able to continue just to just increase debts and money supply in places like Japan and now the rest of the developed world um, and, and just almost endlessly with impunity, right? So, so and, and th- there's an idea that it, it can just grow and grow and grow. And so as a conspiracy theorist, what I would think is that, you know, ca- money isn't even cash. It's not even physical anymore. It's a virtual thing. It's data that's just in a computer that says how much a currency is worth. And so what if at some point the entire population says, wait a minute, they're just printing more and more of this. Currency isn't worth what it is on a global level. 
and all of a sudden currency just loses its value. So not inflation due to typical capacity issues and employment issues, but inflation, hyperinflation as a result of the currency just like blows up uh, and then the world changes forever. What does that look like? Um, here, here's another one. Um, you know, we heard so much about the cyber attacks on, uh, you know, that Russia successfully executed uh, in, in our country. And what if they're successful at sort of eliminating data and removing uh, all, of the, all of the data about who has the wealth in the country or much of it and lowering, you know, our, the stability of, of everyone about, you know, how stable the financial markets are and what implications that would have. Those would be my two big ones. Nice. All yeah. totally plausible. Okay. <laughs> Boy, I feel so happy right now. <laughs> Do you have any to add, Rusty? That no, no, be- no, no. We got to no. try to bring this on the upswing somehow, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Those are actually good points. I mean, and, and, and some of those risks people just aren't really considering, particularly the cable of Satan worshippers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's my number one concern. All right. Well, it has been great to have you on the show today, Felipe. How can listeners learn more about you and the work that you're doing? You know, I would go to, uh, you can go to our website at uh, TavesCorp, uh, T-O-E-W-S-C-O-R-P.com. Uh, but we also have a, an affiliated organization called the Behavioral Investing Institute. And if any of the ideas resonated with you about how to coach investors, we offer a coaching program for advisors uh, that's a year-long program that helps you build that communication I was talking about. And just go to BIICoaching.com uh, and you can you can look into more information about that. Great. Well, Felipe, it was great to have you back on the show. And I always learn something when I talk to you. You're always fun to talk to. And again, in terms of the strategies on the OPS platform last year, they are getting strong performers in terms of uh, absolute relative performance and raising assets. So good job on all of that. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome to be here. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.